by Playfair Capital. Rethink the way you live and work. Hello and welcome to The Chess Pit, the podcast where three guys talk about chess. Occasionally, I'm John McKenzie. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Robin Sarfas. Hello, John. Hello, and a very special guest today. We have Nate Solon. Nate, how are you? I'm great. Good to be here. Mm. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, this is the part of the show where I say, how the hell are we doing, chaps? But Nate, you have just recently moved house and um, it sounds like uh, quite an adventure that you've gone on. Yeah, yeah. I just moved from Boston to Omaha, Nebraska. So, I mean, I guess the listeners can't see this, but I'm in a little room. I just have like one lawn chair, essentially. I, I sort of have like a board with my computer balanced on um, a vacuum, a box from a vacuum cleaner. So... I saw the picture on Twitter. It was, yeah, it was my impressive. stuff's supposed to be arriving in like three or four more days. What precipitated your journey to, to Omaha? Yeah, so um, we had lived in um, Boston for my wife's job. Um, she's a neuroscientist, so, so she was working in the Cambridge area. But she's fully remote. I'm fully remote now. So we were like, oh, we don't really have to live somewhere so expensive. Moved out a little closer to, um, to where her family lives uh, in Iowa. I'm reading um, Jonathan Franson's The Corrections at the moment. And um, the impression that I get from Jonathan Franzen is that he's, a, he's a, an author of the Midwest. And I assume that Nebraska is in the Midwest. Um, yeah, Nebraska is for sure Midwest. I actually grew up in Michigan, which I would consider part of the Midwest, but that one's maybe more debatable. My, my American geography is, is next to non-existent. It sort of goes northeast, no, north, yeah, northeast and then like southwest and then a few things in between. Uh, and then, then Texas is somewhere down there and Florida is somewhere down there, right? Yeah, basically yeah, anything anything that's not like on the eastern seaboard or on the west coast is like the Midwest for some reason. Like you get to like, <laughs> like there's definitely Midwestern countries that are in the eastern half of the US for some reason, but the Yeah, well it's the these these coastal elites call it flyover country, but then people people take objection to that. I think it I think it goes back to like um colonial days where you know, the mid the Midwest now was actually the western frontier of what of like the 13 original states or whatever yeah of, of like what the colonialists were um were occupying we have this in the uk which is just people from people such as myself from from london <laughs> uh and the south basically we just uh, just refer to anywhere that's north of like Sur- north of um north of like watford as the north even if it's like def- definitely in the half of, uh, in the southern half of the country and it is a, it's an elite thing for sure hmm. yeah i live in the north at the moment and i consider robin to be a horrible metropolitan oh, elite yeah, for yeah. sure yeah. okay yeah surfacing some tension on the on the podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever we have guests on, we actually uh, we actually do have this sort of the tensions do bubble over. We had uh, David Vizgan on recently. I know that you went on David's uh, mm-hmm. podcast last week. I think we we've we've done a terrible thing in that we've we've managed to overlap with our guests quite a bit with David in, <laughs> in the last few uh, in the last few months. Um, so we have to we have to think of wild things to talk to you about. You've done all the sensible stuff with David, so uh, I, I I can't be held accountable for where we end up going. Uh, today but let, let's just start off talking a little bit about yourself in terms of um, what it is that that you well how, how it is that you consider yourself to be a chess person at the moment I think that's mm-hmm. maybe an interesting question so um, what what is what is your sort of chess context at the moment yeah so maybe, maybe I can just sort of start brief you know I played as a kid like a lot of people playing lots of tournaments like really immersed into it 
became a master, then sort of got out of it around high school, college. I was a, I, I played poker for a living, I, again, like, like a lot of chess players for many years after that. Then just in the past several years, um, I more or less quit poker and, and ended up getting into data science. So that's what I've been doing for the past few years. Um, then, then just in the last year or two, I guess the big thing is like combining that data science with chess. So I started, you know, I started my newsletter, Zwish and Zug, which kind of combines chess, data, learning, um, and just tweeting a lot more, I guess. Um, so I would say where I'm at right now is, is like creating a lot of chess content, combining with data. I'm also a, a consultant at Chessable right now. Um, so, so that's sort of um, a big part of what I'm doing. You know, I was just thinking about this, like, I'm, as far as how I, what sort of chess person I, I am, I'm really happy with the content side of um, creating, you know, write, writing the newsletter, trying to help people with their chess. I feel like the, the sides that have been harder for me are actually the competition and coaching because I've, I've gone back into that a little bit. I, I haven't exactly found um, a way to engage with those that's quite as satisfying for me as, as the content side of it. Hmm. Do you feel under pressure to be performing at a high level in order to justify your content at all? Mm, not so much to justify the content because I feel like... Um, you know, that's really more about the quality of the explanation and if people can relate to it. And I don't think, um, I don't think it's that much about the strength of the chess player. So, you know, um, there, there are people who just in terms of practical over the board playing strength who, who are not as strong as me, but, but maybe are stronger writers or better able to connect with people. So like, I don't, I don't think there's some sort of rating cutoff of like, who's allowed to create content. Um, I do think it's good. Like, I think it's good to have skin in the game in the sense of if you're writing about chess competition, you should be in touch with um, what it feels like to play in a chess tournament. Because like that experience is just viscerally really intense and emotional. And I feel like if you, if you haven't played in a tournament um, in too long, it's, it's easy to get out of touch with it. And you're sort of like, you know, you see all these people stressing about tournaments and you start to think like, what's the big deal? It's just chess, you know, just go have fun, whatever. And then you play in a tournament and you're like, oh yeah, that was, that was an intense experience. I, I get why, why people are struggling with this. Hmm. In terms of, you, you just mentioned that you've moved from Cambridge, Massachusetts to, to Nebraska. What do you expect will change in terms of your chess context now that you're in a completely different part of the country? Yeah, I thought, I thought about this a fair bit. Um, so in terms of over the board chess, there's not as much at, as at um, as high a level in Nebraska. You know, Boston, we have the Boylston Club, which is like a great historic chess club that's really active. Um, in Nebraska, there's, you know, there's not as many masters. Boston's sort of an interesting chess scene because you've got some really strong players like grandmasters, but actually some of them, you know, they might just be in there, there to study. Like we have, so you know, so many universities, Harvard, MIT, many others in Boston. So there's actually a fair number of, of really strong chess players have come through, but generally they're not playing chess when, you know, they're, they're, they're studying, so they're not really doing chess. Um, then we also have like a lot of strong kids in like quite a lot in like the 2000 to 2200 range. And then, you know, some who go beyond that. I mean, obviously Carissa Yip, um, 
is is ultra strong. She's from from Massachusetts. So we have a lot of players. Um, Nebraska, there's there's not as many strong players. But I, when I thought about this, I realized that really um, most of my chess life is online these days. Anyway, um, I've been playing a you know occasional over the board tournaments, maybe a couple a year. Obviously, COVID is a huge concern as well. Um, but I just even in Boston, I was not playing many over the board tournaments, so I didn't feel like that was um, a huge loss. Um, so, and, and there is, um, you know, there's a chess community in in Nebraska as well. John Hartman, um, the editor of U.S. Chess, is lives in Omaha. Uh, JJ, uh, from, who's you know one of our, our chess Twitter friends, is is in Lincoln, which is nearby. Um, so basically, I felt like you know I'm not playing that much o- over the board anyway, and if I would, I would probably travel. Actually, I'm going to this tournament. I don't I don't know if you guys know about this one, the U.S. Amateur Team East. It's sort of this big big tradition in the United States, but but I am actually going to that one in a few weeks. So that'll be that'll be my first tournament over the board in quite some time. Do you ever uh, being a, that you're a data scientist slash sort of well chess or leaving chess? Is it a sport? Question aside, you ever been to the mm-hmm. Sloan Analytics Conference? I have not. I mean, obviously, that is sort of um, in my backyard. And I mean, I was really um, uh, excited when, I don't, I don't know if it was this year, it was probably a couple of years ago where, um, you know, like there was there were some chess events with, I remember Daryl Morey. Um, he set it up, the, right? The, the, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if he set it up, but certainly he was he was involved. I mean, he, so, so he's the, the general manager of the, the Houston Rockets, the NBA team. Not anymore. Um, Philadelphia 76ers oh, these days. Oh, excuse of. me. Philly just, yeah, I just outed myself as like not that big of a basketball fan. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he was the Rockets. Now he's with the 76ers, um, but but a huge uh, chess fan. And I watched the YouTube videos. Of, like there was a fascinating one of, um, I think it was um, Leela versus Komodo, I believe. And the developers are both of it, were there. And there was, they got into this end game where there was an issue with Leela at the time where when it was, really far ahead on the board um it was uh it would do this sort of like like it seemed like trolling behavior like it would sort of rather than just go for a quick checkmate it would like randomly give away a rook and go into a winning pawn end game and then like promote to another rook and, and the game would just drag it so this this game was dragging out like this and everyone was sort of sitting on stage squirming a little bit um <laughs> so that 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 was an interesting one um but yeah the I, I'm sort of rambling on. I haven't I haven't gone to the conference. It is it is exciting how um they've done a lot of chess stuff recently. Daryl um Daryl Morey went on a stream with Hikaru Nakamura a couple of years ago, I think. It's like a, he's really a, like a big a big chess guy. It's uh people always make sporting chess comparisons. Normally people who don't know anything about chess make like sporting chess comparisons all the whole time. It's like people like basketball pundits will always talk about you know, like the game of chess that's developing between the two coaches, right? It's just like a game of chess. And it's, it's so like chess is seen as this, um, has this sort of mythic status among like quasi sports people as like uh, anything that's in any way requires strategic thinking turns into a chess match. Um, mm. Is there like, do you, now that you sort of being one of the kind of, I guess sort of like leading people in sort of analytics and chess, is there much you kind of get from, from sport that kind of goes in the other direction? Are you, you know, how much does the kind of analytics that goes into, I guess, data science is a pretty uh, is a pretty agnostic subject, right? But I don't know. Would do you think if if you went to something like Sloan, would you be looking at 
you know, would that do you imagine that would actually be that relevant to chess? You know, I think it would. I think this is an area that um, can be explored a lot more and, and should be. Um, like one th- one thing I, I I think is really important is all the things around chess that you can do to improve your performance. So I, has has um, Benji come on the uh, come on this yeah. podcast? Yeah. So yeah. so I mean, he's really he is is great on that stuff and, and knows a lot more about it than I do. But but I think just you know something like having um, a pregame ritual, right, where you do the same thing before every game, which could be very simple. It could you know whatever, just go for a walk, um, meditate for five minutes, you know, whatever, whatever it would be. But I think historically chess players, you know, casual chess players, and even some, some strong chess players from what I've seen, don't necessarily take that kind of stuff that seriously all the time. Um, so I think there are some, some gains to be had there. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of the poker world where if you go way back in poker, you know, it was just all these these guys sitting around a table drinking, sort of playing each hand as, as it came, just kind of guessing at the right thing to do. And then as poker got more competitive, all of a sudden you start seeing, like, the top players are these guys who are incredibly on the ball and high achieving. And, you know, they're all into lifting. They're in amazing shape. They're all, like, life hacking and, you know, laser focused. So I think you sort of saw that in poker as as the stakes got higher and the rewards for succeeding increased, you, you saw people start to take it really seriously and sort of optimize every, everything they could to gain any edge. And I, I think you are seeing that more with, um, with at least the top players in chess. Like it seems like being in good physical condition is talked about more and more. And some, I, sometimes I think it's like a little bit exaggerated. Like some guy, you know, somebody goes for a jog every day and you read some story about like, chess players are athletes this guy's an iron man i'm like well you know he's not exactly about to play in the nba but it's like at least i think it's on the radar of people that that to be in good shape is going to help your your mental processing that pregame ritual thing is is funny because people like sports people are famously superstitious there's those you you always hear sort of like wild stories about before every uh before what what players do before games there's this famous one that jr smith used to always have like a there's like a sort of not particularly like prominent but sort of like quite sort of sort of well-known-ish NBA player who before every basketball game he would have like this massive coffee with like eight sugars in it that's his <laughs> thing which is like obviously like fizzy like on a sort of like I can't imagine a doctor would advise doing that as being healthy but it was just something he would do partly just because he was was part of his kind of pre-game ritual and I like chess players uh sort of the educational school that kind of breeds a lot of chess players or a lot of chess players kind of adhere to being very scientific and analytical is kind of at odds with that, with the idea of superstition, right? A lot of chess players, I think, would dismiss the idea of anything sort of of like the idea of luck being out of hand. The whole one of the things people love about chess is that, you know, you can't you can't hide from the truth that's there on the board in front of you. And so uh, I wonder if... uh, where where we're sort of looking at like this this pregame ritual stuff, how much of it is like psychosomatic, how much of it is 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 sort of physiological, um, and how much yeah how much of it is just tied to the belief of like uh, if you go to the board having not I don't know done your 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 pregame ritual, you just don't believe you're going to perform as well, and then that has like a, a psychological impact on you. It's absolutely fascinating, and Benji is a, a long time friend of the of the podcast, um, 
and just friend of the podcast does as well actually i was in, uh, <laughs> having a beer with him like last week so oh awesome yeah for me it's i i almost feel just just like for my own personal experience it's it's not necessarily that i would believe that whatever i would do in that um pre-game ritual would impact my my brain in some some profound way that would make me better at chess it's more just having the the same thing I would do every time and knowing I'm, I'm going to do it might help me feel a little bit more calm going into the game. Um, and uh, sorry, I had one more thought on this and then I just, just um, lost, lost my train of thought, but yeah, I think, I think it's more just, just um, that sort of bring that consistency into, oh, oh, the other thing I was going to say is maybe for me, the, the biggest benefit would be actually that if I have that ritual, I have to do that is going to block me from frantically researching openings before the game, which <laughs> is for sure not helpful based on overwhelming experience, but but is a trap I've fallen into. And I still still see, when I do play o- over-the-board tournaments, I see tons of people doing that. And I think it's really not helpful to, to be, be frantically going through chess base or the lead chess database or something like minutes before your game. That, um, that's stupid. But is, could you then say that that, that the, you know, being superstitious and believing that that ritual is, I don't know, that in some way is going to make you play better or something like that, is that not actually a get, sort of going to develop good habits, right? Like mm. if you're saying, oh, so that, you know, be, be sort of that, 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 that level of comfort that you're going to be in or just sort of being used to what you're doing, is uh, that superstition is actually in a way kind of, helping people do something which actually has a sort of like rational explanation of why it is helpful so it's not that like you know say someone has to i don't know they have to eat something a certain thing drink a certain thing run a certain amount before they play a game right like it might be that their belief of why it's being helpful is 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 complete mumbo jumbo but actually it might be helping them quite a lot yeah i think there's um no that that's a really interesting point like maybe um even even if objectively the lines you review um would uh, not appear on the board. Maybe, maybe that is a little bit of a safety blanket. I just, I just feel on that particular one that something about this sort of experience of clicking really fast um, makes me really anxious, and I, I think based make, makes most people anxious. And then you also typically you get sort of a um, what usually happens is is the lines you looked at don't appear on the board, yeah. and then that can be sort of an unpleasant jolt that might. Uh, undo whatever feeling of security you were trying to build up yeah i think you're the, the problem with that approach is that you're sort of melding together this idea that if you know more then you'll do better mm. and i think that's like that whether while it while i agree with you it might be the case that you just get into that habit of doing it and it would it would help you that more often than not what you're thinking is i don't know enough i need to know more before i go into this game and that's already sort of putting at you putting you at a bit of a disadvantage but my position on this is that it's cheating to know too much about chess, so that, that sort of thing, that sort of activity, should be discouraged at the most. Yeah, yeah, I think you're 100 percent right about this sort of fallacy of, of knowing more is going to help you. And there's also there's there's kind of an unanswerable question. I would say is if knowing more about the opening would help you, why is it that that you have not learned that in your life to date, and you're going to be able to learn something in the next 10 minutes that will really impact this game? You know, so I don't think there's really a good answer. I mean, I you know, if you know your opponent's repertoire, you can try to be more targeted. I guess that would be the only answer. But but even there, I haven't I haven't found the the, rep, um, the prep you can do in a few minutes to be that helpful. One, one thing I have found helpful is like bring a notebook to the tournament, and any 
any hole in my repertoire or anything I become very worried about in the lead up to the game, I'll make a note of my, to myself to address it later. Um, so then I at least won't forget about it. And uh, that seems to help me sort of like let go of feeling the need to somehow drastically change my repertoire in like the five minutes before the game, um, which is obviously not going to work. I used to see that before exams, people just trying to cram, like, just before you go into the exam hall. I always used to find that weird. I was very much of the opinion that you did all of your revision until the day of the exam, and then you didn't worry about anything. You just sort of went, well, hopefully I know everything, and inshallah, and then it will be okay. My strategy so, was uh, uh, just not do any revision and then just not worry <laughs> about it either, um, which Sean can attest to from our time at university. Together. What you what you were saying about it being... Uh, about it being um, it depends if you know often the lines you look at won't come up i think this, this is this discussion is kind of quite results based right like if you do, if you look up your, your uh, if you're doing sort of a cramming opening prep before a game and then there is a sort of very critical move that you weren't going to know that was hard to find over the board and then you have just look just look to that and you play it as well then you'll you know that probably will help right but how often is that going to happen is kind of the question this is all a, i i got a got a nice quick draw against a much higher rated player uh, the other day, basically through this, right? Like I knew what he was getting, like his, his, I'd sort of looked up his repertoire and then um, what we were playing was like very theoretical. And then on like move 17, he was like, God, this guy is uh, booked up to the, I had the black black side against the play. He was like 20, 2000 and something. I'm like 1850. Uh, so, uh, and then he was uh, offered me a draw on like move 17. So, uh, so, so that's sort of, so you were so, you were so booked up, he was intimidated by it. Yeah, basically. I, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I wanted to you you brought up cram, uh, cramming which I think is super interesting because from from what I've read in the the learning research that's sort of like a my, you know I'm not a learning scientist but but I like to read a little bit to get ideas from what I've read it seems like cramming does seem to sort of work at least insofar as performing on the test you know you can cram and take the test the next day and it works okay for doing well on the test but what usually people usually say as the downside is then your retention after that is is very poor. It goes out the window. So one thing that's that's really interesting to me is actually the way even top like grandmasters prepare is very cram ish. Um, you know, in the sense like it, it, a lot of them complain about it now of like oh you know being a chess player is no fun because before every game I have to spend hours essentially cramming you know memorizing the lines I think I'll have to use in the game. Um, but then the, to me, the fascinating part is, is from a longer term perspective, if so much of your chess time is um, essentially cramming, then it seems like you're, in the long run, your, your sort of retention and growth per time spent is going to be quite poor. So, so in that sense, this whole strategy seems, seems to have a big flaw. Um, I don't want to be too critical because obviously GMs know a lot more about chess than I do. And maybe it's just, you know... They don't know who they're playing or, or the opening theory moves so quickly that they have no other option. But from learning perspective, it seems like there's a lot, um, there's sort of some holes in this process. Well, where I imagine cramming is going to go well in, in like an exam situation is something like languages, right? Like there's some, you, you, you've got to do some tests on some vocabulary. You learn it, very, you've just looked at it, so you can easily just do that. And it's a very... Uh, you can it very easily see that. I think people view chess as something that's very mathematical and it kind of, it, it, it's core level it is, but actually the things that make people good at chess aren't necessarily, like I would say that playing a game of chess, actually the way that you'd sort of need to use your brain is more like, it's like a, like a, 
humanities discipline. It's more like a, having to go and sit down and think about philosophy because actually what's going to make a difference about how well you perform is about is, is about your understanding of, 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 of something. And so in you can't really cram for like a beyond just, you know, learning, looking up quotes from like Heidegger or whoever. Uh, you can't. You, you, you can't really cram for like an essay you've got to go and write. Um, and so I think that, that that's like a, uh, I don't know how much the, uh, the, the analogy holds, but then I guess that the, the reason why cramming might work so well for these top players is because their understanding is so good that once they've seen a move played, they'll just sort of instantly see why it's played. And then that idea will kind of stay with them because once they have, you know, uh, and that's why cramming might not work so well for like a lower rated player I might look at a move and I can say okay well I've learned that this is the right move now but I have no idea why and I have no idea what I eventually you're going to get to a position where you're out of your prep and you have to understand the position and so what's going to set aside a, a, a you know a GM a super GM is their ability to you say oh this move works in this position and they're going to very quickly you know in the time that they might have in an over the board game actually be able to say oh yeah well of course that makes sense and I think that would help with the retention uh, as well and I th- certainly think that that's, that's as someone who's, who just enjoys looking at openings in general that I've certainly found as I've improved as a player people always talk about you shouldn't just l- memorise lines you should you know understand the openings but I also think there's a degree to which memorize, by memorising the games you get them over the board and then you can start building up your understanding by actually sitting and thinking about them yeah I, I think you're um, you're 100% right I've actually uh for a long time, I, you know, GMs are always talking about their opening files. And for a long time, I was wondering, like, like what the hell are these files? Like, what is actually in them? And then, I, you know, so I finally, I finally actually made, like, had an opportunity to see some of them. And basically, for, for GMs, it, it's a ton of moves. Tons and tons and tons of moves with a lot of attention to very specific sort of move order issues. Um, but... I, I think you're right, and it's like for for grandmasters, like they already know all the basic ideas, so they're coming in with the assumption that they can understand everything. They don't need any explanation. Um, my files that I make for myself have quite a lot more, far, far, far fewer moves and much more explanation, because I need to. If if I don't sort of write a note to myself of what is going on in the position and what I'm supposed to be thinking about, I won't remember it. Um, and clearly, that's going to be even even more true as you go down into you know, intermediate or beginning players. That was a, a really profound conversation. Well, all I wanted to do was make a joke about chess players who cram being called cramlings, but... Um, <laughs> or cram necks. Cram necks, uh, yeah, yeah. Cram necks, yeah. That's the Russian one. That's yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah the, I, do think, I do think a lot of this is, is, is really fascinating. And I guess the, the difference between like a, a GM and, and people like me would be that that they can just look at annotation, right? And they'll just, they will not see all of it. They will just focus on the bits where there's there's deviations, right? And I, I guess that that for me is um, the, the the point is that is that when you're so steeped in a in a discipline like chess grandmasters are, super GMs are, that they're just sort of looking at the the landscape and then picking out things on that landscape. Whereas for me, every time I look at a new game, it's like an entirely new landscape that I'm that I'm coming to terms with as well. So presumably that comes into it as well. Do you think? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I was just, I'm actually just, the, the newsletter I'm working on right now is, is kind of a lot about this, of that feeling in a game, you know, I, I'm thinking of a Blitz game especially, but the same thing happens in Glastral where 
you just look at the position and you have no idea what to do. Like your mind is a blank slate. You don't know where to put your pieces. You don't know what your opponent's trying to do. Just, just nothing. And usually that's, that's disastrous because if you don't know any, you know, it's really hard to figure something out from scratch at the board if you have no sort of landmarks. Um, so I, I think as well, like a lot of, well, I mean, obviously grandmasters are good at a lot of things. That's what makes them grandmasters. But, but one <laughs> thing that's really striking is they have a lot of positional knowledge, but not just general positional knowledge. It's like very specific positional knowledge directed at specific opening structures. You know, it's like when things look exactly this way, here's the standard plan. And they know that for like everything. And so for me, at like a FIDE master level, in the positions where I have that kind of knowledge, I can go toe-to-toe with grandmasters pretty well. In the, but, but my knowledge is uneven. In the positions where I don't have that kind of knowledge, I will lose to much weaker players quite easily. People always refer to pattern recognition when they talk about tactics, but I actually think that in sort of like positional understanding, it's equally, if not like more important, right? Because ultimately, like a, a, a tactic, you can sort of figure out, you know, just by having good calculation skills, right? You might not necessarily be picking up that there's a tactic, but you just start calculating lines. And if you're quick and good, you might just eventually stumble upon the right tactic. Whereas in a, in like a, a, a slower positional game, Right, like if you don't know what the ideas are, like some of them are so long term that you're just never. No one is calculating that deeply. Even probably like GMs aren't calculating that deeply. But it's so so. It's it's, it's much. It's like context clues, right? It's just like you 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 see this about the position that just makes you sort of think. And obviously they've just kind of seen everything, and it's so embedded in their in their brains, right? That's like the that's the that's the Magnus Carlsen thing, right? Everyone talks about how he can just play and he'll, his opening repertoire is so diverse, and he can play absolutely any position. But that's kind of self fulfilling, right? The more positions you play, the more you experience, and therefore the more you have that knowledge in, in, like embedded in your in your brain. Oh, just to say like you know Magnus is is famous. For, sometimes they call it chess culture of just knowing knowing all the classics like there's there's youtube videos of people just showing him random positions and you know he knows the game the tournament the year so it's all in the um uh in the the learning science you know they talk about like chunking like connecting ideas together and you know this this seems to be part of what makes it easier to remember is if things are just randomly out there right or it's very hard to remember but if if they're connected in this intensely meaningful web then you can remember a lot more I'm not a neuroscientist, but right, age, like also, I'm sure plays. He like neuro. People always mention neuroplasticity. I'm sure far more people talk about neuroplasticity than actually know what it means. But that sort of doing, making those, forging those connections when you're younger and your brain is, which is sort of more malleable, um, makes a huge difference as well. And that's like a, you know, it. Uh, I think it's it's very hard to understand. I think on a like. People sort of uh, analytically understand, but it's very hard. Like sometimes, as a, as a, like a, an adult chess player, to just not like to, when you see young young people who sort of improve so quickly, sort of it, it's so like unattainable. But I guess they're just like their brains just work in like like physiologically, just actually completely different ways, um, which is uh, it's hard to get your head around it because you, it's hard to or to come to terms with. Maybe I should say. Yeah, I think it's. I, I mean, it's really come to the fore because there's so many more you know adult improvers now. I think it's neuroplasticity is definitely part of it. It's also it's kind of hard to to say for sure. Like how much is is just those brain changes? How much is kids have more time and attention for chess? Another thing I've noticed is um, I think kids on average are more possibly more open to new ways of thinking and experimenting. Um, I kind of get the sense a lot, a lot of adults um, 
there's some strain of stubbornness like they'd almost rather they'd rather stay at their at their current chess level than really change how they're thinking I think maybe adults are a little more susceptible to that than kids. I wonder how much of it's evolutionary as well, in the sense that, like, I mean, not even like biologically evolutionary, but just culturally evolutionary. And I think, I think, for example, of helping my parents out with technology, um, and the assumption being, oh, well, they're old, so they're they're going to struggle with new things. When really, actually, I think we've grown up with, in a world where we're used to technology, particularly. Uh, digital technologies where we're used to just messing around with things and making them work whereas i think they come from a, a, a an era where you couldn't really do that if you mess around with like an engine and it doesn't work you break it whereas i think with us we've we've definitely developed this sort of sense of being like well you know you get a new piece of technology you play around with it see what you can do with it and, and see where you go and i wonder if that plays into the ways that different generations approach improvement at chess yeah, it could be. I, I've noticed that. Yeah, you're whenever whenever you're trying to help your parents with something, it's like they're scared to. You're just like, yeah. just start clicking randomly. That's my strategy. <laughs> have you have you, yeah, have, exactly. you have you tried googling it? Um, yeah. The uh, also children, I think, are just sort of um, not that obviously child psychology is a, a very relevant and important field, but in like a chess sense, children are sort of immune to psychology. I think when you like you, know, I get the impression whenever I've played against against juniors, right? They're not. They're never sort of experiencing like the inner turmoil that any adult chess player faces. Like you know what it's like to be sat at the board and you're thinking about this position and you're just kind of like so many of the the fears, the sort of existential dread that you're going to have to defend some sort of horrible attack. Right? Children's like, not that I don't mean objective in the way that an obje- a, 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 a sort of an engine would talk about what is objectively the best move, but kids seem far more just to be like well i'm just going to assess the position and i'm just going to play like based on based on sort of principles and based on what i kind of know they seem uh, ch- children seem far less scared of the unknown there is you know there's there's sort of a pattern i've had in many games against kids that that i think follows this which is for the first half of the game they seem to not be paying a lot of attention and don't it's like they're allowing me to do all these things but that, that for me, that to me, like, look terrifying for them. You know, all these tactics that I can embark on that, that look like they might work. But I can, you know, you can sense sort of if your opponent's worried and they're not worried. And I'm like looking at them, I'm like, are you not worried about this? Do you not even care? <laughs> but, you know, somehow you can't quite find the win. You're sort of building. And, and then at some motion, moment, the game becomes concrete and their, their position is just on the brink. And that's the moment when they dial in and start defending ultra precisely <laughs> i've had a lot of games like that those games are infuriating i've had it the other way around <laughs> right where they uh where, where i've got the position where they suddenly smell blood and it's like yeah you it you know i've I had almost almost like a almost visceral response to you saying that i actually i had one game where um i was playing against a very very strong kid actually i think this was at this u.s amateur team east tournament a few years ago um and he kind of he kind of messed up the opening a little bit. I got a good position. Um, things the game was going well for me, so you know I was trying, I was sort of trying to um, keep control of the game like you do. And um, he was he was quite dejected. And but then at some moment I kind of made an inaccuracy, and his position, which was very passive, you know, he's sort of able to break out. Like the position was still unclear, but but suddenly his pieces had some, some activity. Energy. Yeah. Yeah, and he was he had his headphones on. He was, he was listening to music the whole game. And at that moment, he actually stood up and literally started to dance. Like, and I don't think, you know, I, I don't think he was even doing it consciously. It was just, you know, he was a kid and it was sort of 
his body was kind of following his mood. But when he started dancing, I was like, Ooh, this is this is really bad for me, I think. <laughs> I might start doing that dancing at the board, even if I'm in a bad position, right? You gotta get the you gotta get the uh the one up on them psychologically. Um, Can't imagine we, a we worse should, position uh, than having to sit opposite you dancing, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably the best chance I'd have. But um, we, we, it was interesting before, actually, just to to pull the conversation right back to what whatever we were talking about 15 minutes ago. But um, it was interesting when Robin talked about analytics and Sloan and the things that you would take from sport and jumped immediately to sort of things that we would consider to be on analytics, such as... Uh, like superstition basically mm, mm-hmm. um and and clearly like chess does have a problem with being too analytic but i i want to sort of flip the question on its head and, and push it to the opposite extreme so to what extent do you think that people aren't using analytics enough in chess and and to what extent do you think there's a real um possibility for people to get more out of using uh, analysis than they actually already are well it's, there's sort of maybe two kinds of, of analytics and chess. I, sometimes I call them analysis versus analytics. So analysis would be, you know, what we all done traditionally, right? Which is you look at the game, you analyze it. These days you look at it with an engine, but sort of like trying to get at, at the truth of a position from a chess standpoint. And then the, what I call the analytics side is looking, not, not analyzing it from, from a chess standpoint in that way, but looking at the data of what's actually happened in human games. Um, so, uh, you know, the database, like obviously we've had chess base for a long time now, Lee chess has this database. Lee chess actually has this incredible service where every month, uh, they upload their like entire database of, you know, millions of games and, and looking for the patterns there. So, um, one thing, you know, this, this is not something that's totally new, but I think it's, it's something that. People can still get some value at maybe maybe especially at lower levels is like not just looking at how good an opening is you know we would say objectively like based on the engine evaluation but like how well does it actually perform in practice um, and what you see is you know quite often that how well it actually performs in games between humans might not be very well predicted by the engine evaluation and it's extremely extremely sensitive to the levels of the players like different openings. Um, work uh well or not as well at, at different levels and especially at lower levels you can find um some uh some openings that really score sort of absurdly well um you know so for instance one was like this line in in the berlin where you go you retreat your knight from c6 to e7 and there's this very cheap trick that if white takes on e5 you play c6 your queen comes out to a5 and gives a check and and you win a knight so that, at lower levels on Lee Chess, that, that line is performing really, really well. Um, and pe- people seem to be resistant to, to making choices based on this, which is, which is fair because I think there's different considerations. There, there is a very real trade-off of what am I maximizing for? Do I want to perform as well as possible in my next Blitz game or my next tournament? Or am I, you know, am I trying to become a master or an IM? And I think the the openings you're going to choose are are really sensitive to that i would say you know if you're if you're a 1700 and you are not super happy with your opening at the moment and and your only goal is like your life depends on your performance in the next tournament um yeah some sort of weird gambit might be your best chance but 
if you're um, if you're trying to become an IM, maybe you don't you don't want to trick your opponent in the opening because then you just play your preparation. You don't really have a game. You don't learn anything. So actually, you would prefer to go into the teeth of of whatever your opponent is ready for because you want the challenge. There's edge cases here as well, which is because obviously that applies very much at the lower level and those things that people fall for are going to be sort of often quite like what a good player would view as quite obvious tactical tricks, right? Like, you know, hanging a, a, a you know, a, a fork to some queen check on a five, right? Like is a, is a great example of that. But I think that as you move up in the, in the devils of, of chess, that, that kind of, that idea still exists, but it's more about like a, you know, so I'm like a, I guess, a class A player, right? Like, you know, 1800 to 2000 range, right? So, and the variety of what gets people to that level is so different. Some players will, you know, you especially if you get strong online players, right? Some of them who play a lot of blitz, right? Their their sort of online rating would put them in that sort of level, right? Like the people you analysed for your um this this Roy Lopez study you did, you know, sort of two thousand blitz on Leeches would probably be in that range, right? But many of them would have just got there purely based on a placed on like the stuff that makes you good at blitz, right? Like tactics and and you know uh, 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 and and whereas. Other players will get to that strength by actual, like, much more, by other means, right, by more sort of positional stuff based on, you know, they play sort of slightly, I guess, more, uh, I don't know, I don't mean this in a value judgment sense, but like refined openings, right? And then they'll have, like, positional ideas and stuff. And so they may not have, be as, as nearly as quick tactically, but obviously they've just seen the position so many times that they avoid tactical difficulty or that they you know used used to the positions enough that they can sort of pick up on it and so then i'll find that like at this level i'll i'll play games where it's just that because i know an opening or know the position quite well right like i'll you know it's kind of the same position right they just just like it's you know that in this line of the uh line of the uh line of the berlin you can't take on 95 it's just like well there's the same thing you can't you know in this certain position you can't push this pawn and you can't make this pawn break yet kind of thing those those the errors that you that people make are still going to be there's still going to be those sorts of errors right where it's just a complete like uh well i just haven't got to the level at this part of the game where i just know that that's the wrong thing to do at that time and so um and so i i i think that until you get to like a, a sort of master level there's still so much discrepancy between the strong and weak parts of, of, of players' games. Like, there's a certain point at which you're just going to get... You can never be a master. You can never get to FM, right, if you're just, just bad at end games, right? You haven't learned your, you know, your, like, really core, important end games and things like that. But below that, you... There's as much as, much as one aspect of your game can hold you back. I think that people can also get very far just basically on having, like, very narrow but very, like, strong skill sets. Like Ma- Maxime vachier Legrand, who's <laughs> playing the well, over and over again. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed this... Um, I'm always sort of fascinated at what, like, what makes people good at Blitz, because that is, that is just the majority... You know, during COVID, like, online Blitz is the majority of chess I'm playing. Mm. So, I, you know, you see these guys who are not titled players. You know, they may be national masters, but they're their online blitz ratings are like 2,700 plus, like really high. And so I, you know, I'm always like studying these guys. I'm like, what are they doing? And, and um, so the patterns that I've noticed are, you know, obviously they play really fast. They're good with the mouse. So if it comes down to a time scramble, you can be sure they're going to be really good at that. They usually play sort of like, like a quirky, narrow opening repertoire. A King's Indian attack super popular, right? Where it's just the same moves and it's, it's, you can kind of like bash it yeah, out a that's little bit. A, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, 
So maybe something a little offbeat that's easy for them to play and a little bit tricky for their opponent to play in the opening. Um, good at spotting, like like quick one, two, three move tactics. And then, like you say, usually um, not very interested in long-term strategic plans, which I, which I think actually being sort of too interested in strategy can even be a weakness in Blitz because then you start thinking and you start trying to develop um, this grand plan to beat your opponent. But like... It's not gonna. It's not gonna work usually. It's usually gonna come down to some one player or the other missing a tactic. Um, so if it gets into quiet positions, often these guys are just sort of shuffling their pieces, um, not trying to do much, but they're also not spending much time. And uh, when you only have three minutes, it's actually it's really hard to to break someone down who's doing that and who's like very alert to tactics. So what you're saying is that me running out of time on move seven of the Roy Lopez and Blitz is not a good strategy to, to, to win at Blitz games. It's a, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, a lot of uh, Blitz players who are focused on their like strategic stuff, who've read a lot of books, right? There's sort of like a moral moral thing of like, they'll feel like the, the sort of, they've won this Pyrrhic victory by having like a better position on move 11 because they've got, you know, like a bit more, a bit more central space and, uh, you know, like the opponent's got a bad bishop, right? And they're still clinging onto that as they're getting checkmated or flagging. Right, yeah. so like, oh, well, I I outplayed this person when it, you know, and then oh, it was just on time, right? As if that that's as if they've not clicked the button which says blitz game and like gone into it like knowing that actually like, but one of the conditions for winning <laughs> is you have to not run out of time. I, you know, I think I think that can actually be something that does. It, it's like a little bit of a trap that I think even holds some players back. Is that, I mean, it does seem to make sense. Like, okay, I don't care about blitz. I'm focused on chess improvement, so I'll take as much time as I want to understand the position. Like. It sounds like it makes sense, but then you get into this sort of recurring cycle where every game you spend way more time than your opponent early in the game. You get an advantage, which you kind of should if you spend way more time, mm. and then you either flag or miss a blunder. So you've got a ready-made excuse like, I understood chess better than this idiot just tricked me or flagged me. Rinse and repeat, right? But then you sort of get stuck in the, you know, I don't, I don't think it's really a good thing to have a ready-made excuse available for your losses. I think it's better to just whatever format you're playing to kind of accept it and play for the win according to the, the strictures of that format. Um, you know, there's, there, there's something about just that sort of the confrontation and doing what it takes to win that's also really important for chess. That's a skill that I think blitz players have is sometimes they need to like, it's like, alloc it's not about, it's allocating the time. It's like sometimes, yeah, you've got, you feel like you've got a much better position. It's like, yeah, sure. Give yourself 15 seconds to, you know, start actually just trying to do some calculation, just try and really think about it. But sometimes, yeah, you just have to like make a move. And that's probably true in, 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 in longer time controls as well. Right. Like there's, I'm sure, you know, there, there must be a, I'm sure you could, well, I think it, I imagine it would be a hard thing to actually get data on, but this would be interesting, right? Like, what is the um, amount of time invested in a move versus the sort of the like how like how actually like quote unquote good the move is to a certain degree and like is there a is there an optimum amount of time beyond which you're just you know you're just going over the same stuff again or you're just you've calculated so much you can't remember what you started thinking about you know that would that would be something that would be fascinating again I I wouldn't be able to sort of practically say how you would do that but I think that 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 interests me a lot this also reminds me of before we were on air you mentioned this meme about like you claim to uh, you claim to you know you to to hate society and yet you live in society right it's like well, you claim to want to play blitz chess and yet you just take like three and a half minutes like three minutes on your foot on your third move like <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, yeah i just wanted to say that um the thing about 
time versus decision I th- it is a really fascinating thing you could address with data. I think there's there's a really interesting causality thing going on there, which is um, the classic saying, right, is think long, think wrong, which sort of implies the causality is going that way. The mm. thinking too long is causing you to make a mistake. Yeah. And there's a story there which is compelling, which is like, you know, analysis paralysis, you got to in your own head, you overthought it, mm. right? And, and and people sort of buy into this story. But I think um, there's another side to it, which is, which sort of goes back to what we were saying about like not being familiar with an opening or a structure and how it's very difficult to actually figure something out from a blank slate over the board. So I think actually quite often the causality is going the other way. Um, you find yourself in a position where you don't know what to do. You spend more time because because you don't know what to do and you're trying to figure it out, but nonetheless, you don't know what to do. So, so probably you don't end up figuring it out. So, so in that case as well, what you're going to see is a long thinking time and often a mistake, but it's not that the, lo- the issue is not that you thought for too long. The issue is that you had no idea what to do. So it was appropriate for you to think for a long time to try to figure it out, but it's just a really hard problem. It's um, very, um, it's yeah. very hard to control the variables here, right? Like, I guess yeah. you'd maybe start having to look at it as like people who spent different amounts of time in the same position or, you know, you know what I, like actually, I, I had, I had one funny idea of this from a, from a data analysis perspective is, um, you could look at Lee chess, tur- Lee chess tournaments where one player berserked because then you actually have, then it's not based on the difficulty of the position because they actually started with half the time. Mm. Um, but then again, usually people, people berserk more when, when they're the higher rated player and they're pretty confident of crushing their opponents. So, um. There, there's some issues there as well, but that would be one way you could try to go about it. Maybe one thing, one one thing. Sorry, well, sorry, sorry, just the final thing, John. Is just uh, maybe what you need to do is is you need to get people to look at like uh, problems, right? Just look at position and find the best move, and then right, you you ask them to look at the position for for ten minutes, say, and then you ask them what they think the, the correct move is after thirty seconds, what they think the correct move is after two minutes, and then what they think the correct move is at the end. Right, and then and then assess, you know, like whether or not people are getting cut, like more of the correct solution at the end. But I imagine that ten minutes would be more helpful than thirty seconds. It's uh, it's I, I don't know. This is the, the the more you try and apply data to things, the more you just feel like, well, I just feel like I need more data and to control more things to actually get the answer that I'm uh, looking looking <laughs> for. Sorry, John. Yeah, I was just going to say what what really I find really interesting about this is the the universality of of the way that people view chess. So people think that chess is a thing which is the same in all at all times and all places for all people and it's like clear when you're talking about things like blitz that that's not the case there's different those there are different variables that become more or less operative in different situations and i find this really fascinating when it comes to engines because obviously an engine is just doing a universally best like continuation from a position that you're in um so so when you're talking before about like how do you how do you how do you as a lower rated player use an engine when that engine is specifically designed to be functional for people who are like at least 2500 plus right in in terms of it will give you the the evaluation of the position if you make all of the best moves from this position on and i wondered if you had any thoughts on on that in particular nate whether or not you thought there might be more useful ways or different maybe even different ways of developing and using engines um as a way to help maybe lower rated players one of the things that i was thinking about is that obviously when you're talking about an engine evaluation it's taking simply one line of of uh, of approach and i guess what i'm what i'm interested in is like the thickness of that line so 
if there's only one move that you can make and if you don't make that move it's it's not a good continuation you represent that as a thin line but then if there's a lot of scope for you to make a few different moves that actually aren't that bad a thicker line things like that are the things that we could develop with our engines to to help maybe lower rated players the the question you're basically asking is how much can an engine differentiate what is a practical move yeah i think so so absolutely i mean i I, i'm hearing like 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 i've heard a lot of people lately discussing this so i think it's like a very sort of fertile topic like like maybe like sort of the biggest at least from like a computer chess perspective like the biggest direction for chess improvement um and i think you're like you're 100 right it's like these engines that we have are built from the ground up just to play strong chess they're not really engineered to like explain themselves to us or be helpful so it's sort of we've just taken the end result of that process and as chess players we're sort of trying to like hack them to you find out some way of interacting with them to get us to tell to, to get them to tell us something useful and strong chess players generally are like part of being a strong chess player is being good at doing exactly that um but like for beginners especially it's like well like the engine is just spitting out all these numbers and moves that like make no sense to me. So I think that, yeah, absolutely. There, there could be a better um, interface. I think that the thing of having a wider line um, for sure, I actually just saw someone on, on Twitter who was um, doing a project along those lines, like looking at how many, similar to what you were saying, how many good moves are available. I think it's, you know, as always, there's, there's, there's some complexity in implementing it because for instance, um, say you have a force recapture then it's going to be very narrow. It's exactly one good move. But it's a super obvious move that even a beginner will find. So like there, that sort of messes with your metric a little bit because it's very narrow, but actually it's easy. So, but at the same time, that's not impossible to address. I mean, you can check if a move is a recapture, for instance. Um, one, one thing I think to look for in, um, you know, like for instance, I, I, I've, seen, I've heard Anish Neri say, and, and others say that like a sign of a healthy opening is that you have multiple good, you know, that you would have multiple good moves in many positions. So, you know, there, as, as far as like, you're doing your own opening research, you're actually looking at multiple engine lines, that's probably already getting into something that's more appropriate for more advanced players. Um, but that's, that's definitely something to be aware of. Um, another project that I really love is um, Maya Chess. I don't know if you guys have seen I've, yeah, these. I've, 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 this was... Um... I imagine that what John is saying was partly inspired by Dan Gallagher's uh, had a thread on Twitter at Bishop Pair talking about talking basically about this right like the disparity between sort of engines being able to say what is like the best move in their eyes and actually what is the kind of the most likely move to to get you a good result. You and David sort of talked about this a little bit when you spoke on your podcast uh, on his podcast the other the other week, right? And um, it is a what is you know uh, what an engine might say is just is more objectively winning might have nothing to do with the uh, with the move which makes this winning the simplest thing to actually achieve for a human um, and yeah anyway so yeah that's when someone commented about Maya Chess uh, yeah know. yeah so that's that's this project where it is basically what it's trying to do is make a more human like engine so if you look at Alpha Zero or Leela Zero um they're trained exclusively through self-play, right? Like no human knowledge except for the literal rules of chess. Um, and then they just play themselves like a gajillion times and improve, you know, so, so they're building up with it. You know, I think what you're doing is it's like, it's not just like what is the best move, it's what is the best move for who, right? So for Leela, it's for Leela because by definition, 
everything it's learned is playing itself. Um, what Maya does is um, it's also a neural network, so it's also a machine learning thing. But instead of training through self-play, it trains by trying to imitate human games. Um, so Leela never sees any human games. Maya has this database of human games, and what it's trying to do is predict the next move a human would play for various levels. So those are, um, you can play against those bots on Leechess. There's like these Maya bots. And uh, they do seem to be, it feels more like playing against a, you know, there, there's always been this problem of like, how do you create an engine that is fun to spar against? Because the full strength engine kills you and that's not no fun for most people. But then a lot of the, the solutions people have tried to do to make it weaker have been really clumsy. Like, you know, just like once every 10 moves, it just like, blunders <laughs> sports game ai's have the same uh, yeah. to be fair that's exactly yeah. how i do it as well every one to every 10 moves i blunder <laughs> so as well so that's the that john bot it actually it works <laughs> sports um. gamer ai's have this problem right as well which is that like you can't really make a football sim or a basketball sim or whatever like nba 2k or whatever you can't make one of those that actually is played that, that, where the sport is played how it is played in reality and so then in order to make it this sort of the AI, like if you set, if you change the difficulty, the only way they can do it is just making the, you know, the opposition just so like, act like so slow that they just, you know, it's like completely, yeah, it doesn't actually bear sort of uh, any likeness to what like reality is. And that's the same way of, 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 it's true of playing against an engine, right? Because ultimately it's always coming down to like a, it's deliberately throwing, but to sort of to some percent yeah, of the time, right? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, and so it doesn't feel like like playing a human. So these um, the, these bots seem to be more more satisfying to play. One one idea for um, kind of getting at um, this idea of like good for who or like what are what are the, what are the chances not for the engine here, but what are my chances here is um, Monte Carlo cert or, or like Monte Carlo evaluation, which basically just means from this position just play it out a bunch of times and see what happens. Um, and obviously, like in Backgammon back in the day, they used to literally play it out a bunch of times. For computer, it's much better with computers because they can play it out themselves many times very quickly. So if you've got a bot that simulates human play, maybe like a Monte Carlo approach with, with this entity that's sort of playing at a human level, playing many times and seeing what happens, um, could, could be interesting. So there's, you know, with, with some of the newer... Um, Chess engines. There are there is some Monte Carlo stuff um, included in there. I don't think it's really surfaced in an accessible way currently that a human beginner can can really use it very very easily. Do you think a sort of probabilistic me me uh, models might help as well? Insofar as what you're wanting to see in your from your chess engine is not the best move, but the most probable move that the opposition play, and then evaluating the position on that basis as well. And then if you can if you can Im input a specific level of player who and, and use that to base the probabilities on that it might be a much more useful way of assessing a position for different skills. Yeah, levels. I think definitely. And, and, you know, potentially you could even leverage Maya to do something like this because that's, that's actually precisely what it does is to try to estimate hmm. um, the probabilities of moves in a human game and choose the one that would be most likely. So I think, you know, these, these guys are researchers. Um, they're kind of, uh, their end goal is is not to to um, create a chess training tool. It's more to um, explore sort of more broad, broader topics in in 
uh, machine learning that, that, that can have broader applications. Maybe hmm. there's probably some room for the chess community to kind of pick up the ball and run with it for, to, to create tools that are like more directly useful for chess players. Well, Nate, we've had you for an hour, so um, we should let you go. But it's been really great fun having you on. It's great to chat. What's the best way for people to follow you? What's the sort of stuff that you're wanting to, to uh, push out? Yeah, for on? sure. So, I mean, my Twitter, you know, I'm always on there talking about chess uh, at Nate Solon. Um, the other the other big one I'm doing every week is my, my newsletter, which is about chess improvement and data. Um, that's uh, zwischenzug.substack.com. Um, don't ask me to spell Zwischenzug. You can you can do it, and I've I actually got a. You're asking the viewers to spell Zwischenzug, so it's the least they can expect of you. Let's Z W I S C H E N Z U G. Is that right? At, yeah, at yeah, Substack.com. Yeah, yeah, so I write I write that one. I write I write a newsletter over there weekly, um, and I'm actually uh, I just started working on a chess book project um, where I'm I'm. Um, collaborating on that with um, GM uh, Eugene Perelstein, so I'm one of my friends from the Boston area. So that's going to be a chess book about, it's, it's really focused on evaluating positions. Um, so pro- hopefully have a, a web page up for that one soon, but for the moment, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be giving updates on that on Twitter uh, as, we, as we work on that. Well, cool. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. So I should thank our sponsor, Playfair Capital. Playfair Capital is one of London's leading venture capital funds. And all there is for me to do is to say thank you, Robin. Thank you. And thank you, Nate, so much for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And thank you, you guys, for for listening. And hopefully we'll have Nate on again in the not-so-distant future. (laughs) 